This is Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. Every week, we review an episode of the cult classic time travel series and decide whether it holds up to present day viewing. And hopefully, we'll entertain you along the way. Be sure to check us out on our website, fwwquantumleappod.com, and also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Fate's Wide Wheel. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to week 783 of Shelter shelter in Place. Uh, Happy Easter Sunday. Happy Easter Sunday. We are recording this on Easter Sunday, Sheltered in Place. Even, and you know, regardless of, of, of what your religion or non religion may be, we still want to share the sentiment of rebirth and renewal with, with all. Um, it certainly feels like a, a time when we, when we need it. We need to be reminded that um, we can come out uh, of this and, 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 and things will never be what they were again. You know, there's, the, there's sure, not yeah. going to be like a return to normal or anything. It's certainly going to be a, um, a different world when we do come yeah. out of it. But, uh, Absolutely, but yeah. we will come out of it. We will come out. So in case you're listening to this way, way, way in the future, we mm-hmm. recorded this back in 2020 during the first pandemic. Yeah, Betsy and I joke about that all the time. Like this is this is just the first one. More and more. No, no, no. Kidding. Kidding. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, Dennis and I were just talking off mic about the impact that all of this is having. Um, on our families and, um, you know, certainly on our kiddos and, and just having to figure out ways to entertain and explain to, you know, kids that are young, too young to really understand that. And, and, and furthermore, too young to really express their own frustrations and fears in a way that you know, a non-educated child care professional probably would understand sure, and be capable yeah. of dealing with on a regular basis. So it's, it's definitely been, you know, different. There's not, there's not been a lot of binge watching in this household. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> that, uh, you know, we were talking about that off mic. No, like we have our shows that we will sit down. Like tonight we will sit down and we'll watch Outlander. Totally. Um, you know, we have our, our, our shows that we like to tune, tune in for. Uh, Tiger King, we tried to get into that. I the memes are great. I just cannot, I cannot with that show. So here's the thing. I you know what? I have a microphone. I have people that listen. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take a moment here, and I take and a I moment. Sincerely want your feedback on this. So before I, I have watched a few episodes because there there came a point when I was so against it that I felt like if I didn't at least watch it, that I would just be one of those you know people screaming into the wind without really knowing what they were talking about. Sure. Yeah. Um, but as I've watched it, it really has made me feel like I was, I, I was right uh, in a lot of ways. Um, not, not every way, but I, it made me feel uncomfortable in the same way that I felt uncomfortable after I'd listened to all of S town that I, that the podcast, S town, yes, yes, yes. Where you couldn't help but think in a world where so many people want to raise awareness about mental health and want to provide people with the help that they need if they are struggling with mental health issues, that we are 
in essence, glorifying and getting some sort of weird schadenfreude out of these people who clearly have deep-seated issues. And, and not just the people who are the stars of the show, if you will, but the people that they are hiring, uh, yeah. marrying. Um, you, you know, it's, it's so strange. And never, never once did I truly feel like, with the exception of the episode that delves into the disappearance of Carol Baskin's first husband, I never once felt like I was watching something that approached the topic with any sensitivity or true intrigue. I literally just felt like I was watching the 21st century version of a circus freak show. And I would like to think that we no longer need that to feel good about ourselves, but apparently some people do. And it really, really upset me and it bothered me because I felt like these people were being taken advantage of and their true deep-seated issues were being marginalized at the expense of, like I said, schadenfreude. Yeah. And the thing is, I think more people would be saying what you're saying right now if we weren't in the situation that we are right now. I know know so many people who would share that same opinion that you just expressed and they would be deriding the show right now. But like I see them on social media and they are like totally eating this show up. Yeah. And, um, yes, in I, S town was exactly the same thing that I thought of like watching the, the couple episodes, which by the way, yeah. I think I told you, we, um, me, Betsy, uh, Scotty and Catherine, we totally binged most of S town on the way to, and from <laughs> your, your wedding yeah, yeah. in Indianapolis along that drive. Which the thing is, is it starts out and I feel like even more so than Tiger King, because at least with Tiger King, it never it never pretends to be anything it's not. I feel like the first few episodes of S-Town especially were a case of like this weird sort of manipulative gonzo journalism where, you know, they tried to tell you it was something that it really wasn't. And by the time you got to the back end of the podcast, you just were you felt like this person had been taken advantage of in so many oh, ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and this invasive, like, destruction and, and deconstruction of who they were and their privacy, which is the same thing that I feel like has happened to a degree on Tiger King. Now, I guess the argument could be made with Tiger King that these people wanted the celebrity and the notoriety. But either way, it still feels like some sort of weird, I don't know, reveling in the pigsty of mental illness in order to make ourselves feel better or something. I don't know. Yeah. And there's a little, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, class tourism, poverty Ooh. tourism. Like, even though oh, like, like, perfect. like, yes. like, like, like Joe and Carol, like, even though they are poor, like they're, they're kind of in that, that, you know, that, that Southern world where you, yep. where you kind of assume that everybody is, is stupid and probably, poor just on the verge of being poor or they or, or they're lucky to have pulled themselves out of being poor yeah well and especially the people that work worked for joe like seeing them and hearing from them and hearing their stories you're just kind of like yeah sure you need a shower afterwards or something i don't know um yeah but anyway, um, speaking of, to bring it around, speaking of the South. Yes. <laughs> and there is a Southern Gothic element of the storyline, which I get. But anyway, speaking yeah. of the South and Southern Gothic, 
We are here this week. Uh, we are in season five. We're deep in it. We are to talking about. I didn't stutter on purpose, by the way. That actually just happened. I didn't want to do think I was like affecting a Will Kidman or something. Uh, yeah, it just happened. But we are here to talk about trilogy part one, which was subtitled "One Little Heart." It's episode eighty of Quantum Leap. Our director is James Whitmore Jr. Um, and of course, he is a name that we are very familiar with. He's worked on the show numerous times, um, going all the way back to, uh, I believe, early. Hang on, it's right here in front of me. Um, early in season two, yes, with Jimmy. Um, he would also go on to do Leap of Faith, Great Spontini, Rebel Without a Cause, Eight and a Half Months, Piano Man, Nuclear Family. And really, at this point in the show, after Nuclear Family, he really gets into the big, kind of big episodes, because he did Leap for Lisa, Lee Harvey Oswald, all three episodes of Trilogy, Memphis Melody, you know, take it or leave it as a big episode, uh, and of course the final episode, Mirror Image. He also has a uh, sort of cameo, I suppose you could say, in the episode as the Mirror Image of Sheriff Clayton Fuller, um, which is... uh, Interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, we are uh, being given lines that were written by Deborah Pratt. Um, Deborah Pratt, of course, uh, her fingerprints are all over Quantum Leap. Um, was not only uh, Troyan in Portrait for Troyan, and of course our, our narrator and the voice of Ziggy, um, but has written numerous episodes throughout the course of the uh, uh, run of the show, um, no fewer than 20 episodes, um, some of which include Starcross, The Color of Truth, which, interesting enough, has the exact same leap date as Trilogy Part 1. Um, she would also do Another Mother, Her Charm, Black and White on Fire, uh, Last Dance Before Execution, Shock Theater, um, Song for the Soul. Most recently, she did the previous episode, Deliver Us from Evil. She'll go on to write the rest of Trilogy, Liberation, and her final episode will be Revenge of the Evil Leaper. Um, our air date was November 17th, 1992, so we are in the fall sweeps window, um, which would explain why this episode aired when it aired. Uh, our leap date, of course, as I mentioned, is August 8th, 1955, which is the same leap date as The Color of Truth. Sam has leapt into Sheriff Clayton Fuller, and we are in Potterville, Louisiana. Potterville, Louisiana. TV guy description. <laughs> Sam is a small-town sheriff whose young daughter has a suspicious connection to a mysterious death. And uh, in other countries, let's see what this was known as. Uh, in Germany, it was known as Das Medallion. Okay. The Medallion. The Locket, I assume. Yeah. Um, in France, it was known as The Little Lost Heart. La Petite Corpodou. Yeah. And in uh, Italy, it was known as Trilogy One, A Face in the Flames. You know, one uh, of the things that I will say about those foreign titles, uh, just real quick, is that I, I like how, um, in particular, the Italian and the German uh, titles point out other elements, you know, of the mm-hmm. plot, um, which is which is interesting. Yeah, and it was, uh, I mean, I've seen in a lot of uh, like commemoration commemora- commemoration books, memorabilia, like the like the Quantum Leap book. Uh, this part was known as One Little Heart. Um, maybe put it in some TV guide description somewhere. And the whole trilogy was promoted on TV as the Daughter of Sin. Daughter of Sin. They're kind wow. of, they're, they're kind of, yeah, I know, right? They're kind <laughs> of, um, and we'll talk about this as, uh, as we talk about through the, today's episode. Um, intentional or not, this episode tips its uh, hat very strongly to the bad seed. Yes. 
1950s movie. Have you seen that? I've not seen it. Um, I'm, I'm familiar enough with it. I think I recall actually reading the play at some point, believe it or not. Oh, I forgot it was a play, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a play before it was the movie. It all happened very in very quick succession, actually. The, the, the novel was written in 54, the play was released later that same year, and then the film was uh, filmed in late 55 and released in, 60, in 56. Um, so, like, really quick trajectory as far as getting it to the theaters. And it's been remade twice since uh, two television films, two television movies. The latest one was just a couple of years ago that Rob Lowe directed and starred in. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. And I know when I asked Betsy last night if she had seen the bad scene before, she said that she had seen The Good Son. Oh, sure. Macaulay Culkin, which I think probably owes a little bit of debt to The Bad Seed. But whereas uh, I, I think with The Good Son, like you know throughout the entire movie that Macaulay Culkin's character is 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 an evil yeah. child. Whereas... In the bad seed, it's kind of like this first part of trilogy. Here, it's implied that maybe the girl is evil, yeah. But I don't think it's exactly spelled out until the end of the movie, because you never actually see the child do any of the things. Yeah, yeah. You're right, though. At the end, it it, it is made explicit, and it's interesting because uh, the. Uh, full spoilers for The Bad Seed. The novel and the play shared the same ending, which was that in the end, the little girl ends up murdering her mother and, and getting away with it, basically. Uh, whereas in the film version, the censors made them change that, and so they had to reverse it, because the, you know, the, the idea that American film censors at the time said that you couldn't have a villain get away with it. Um, uh, which was always the one thing that people were fascinated by with It's a Wonderful Life, because, of course, Mr. Potter being the villain, he basically gets away with stealing the money from the Bailey Building and Loan, which gave rise to the famous SNL skit. But anyway, uh, uh, in the movie, they had to change the ending uh, where the girl actually dies instead. Um, And they did this really weird thing in the credits where the actor playing the mother and the actor playing the daughter, yeah, she, like, spanked her uh, on her knee, but they were both laughing about it. As if, like, the idea behind it, I guess, was that to, to let the audience know, like, this is just a fictional story, ha-ha, yuck-yuck, we're just, this is just jokes, you know? But, man, it's weird. <laughs> it's so weird. I had forgotten about that, but I remember that. That reminds me of, like, when you go to see a really dark, disturbing play, I hate when they have curtain calls. Yeah. I agree. I used to be like, no, that's it. Show's over. No bows. No applause. Get out. Yeah. We yeah. disturbed you. Leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Curtain calls. Anyway. Um, anyway, so, let's jump back in. So as you pointed out, this has the exact same leap day as Color of Truth. And we're in Louisiana. Uh, Potter, Louisiana. I'm not sure if Potter, Louisiana actually exists. Redbone, Alabama is where Sam is in. In color of truth, yeah, they're probably Sam is probably as close to himself <laughs> in another capacity in both timing because there ha- there have been some leaps where he over where there's like a couple of days overlap right before, but I think this may be the first time it's the exact same leap date and geographically he is he's very close yeah to himself yeah I um. I can't find uh, a Potterville 
uh, Louisiana, by the way, just just for for verification. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing earlier, actually, that uh, not only is he on the same day, uh, but yeah, proximity, um, he's, he's, you know, in time is also kind of um, mirrored by his proximity and location. Uh, the other thing that's interesting to note, of course, is that this would be Sam Beckett's second birthday. Um, so he has two, two leaps uh, on the same date, which is his birthday, his second birthday, and, you know, in these southern towns. Um, vastly different stories. Um, written by the same, you know, uh, screenwriter, but uh, I think whereas The Color of Truth is certainly more of a social justice commentary melodrama hour of television, this fits, you know, right in that sort of southern gothic um, just soap operatic kind of um, world. And it's interesting as I thought about this many times as I was watching the episode, uh, trying to you know kind of judge the the quality, if you will, and critique it. And it was very difficult for me to do. And I think part of the reason why is it's so atmospheric, and the Southern Gothic elements of the episode are so well done. And oh, I think just as much to like William Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullers as they do to something like The Bad Seed. Um, but that there is. There was this part of me that started to ask towards the end of the episode, would I think as highly of this if it wasn't an episode of Quantum Leap? And whereas Black and White on Fire, Color of Truth, Good Night, Dear Heart, I could absolutely answer that question, yes. I'm still kind of scratching my head thinking, would I? Would I consider it as good if it wasn't Quantum Leap? If this were just a regular hour of television? And I haven't yet figured out an answer. So I'm hoping that our discussion today can can kind of yield an answer for me because as an episode of quantum leap i think it's incredibly strong divorced from quantum leap do i think it's just an incredibly quality hour of television i don't know Mm. well to address that let me back up a little bit and to address um so you said both of these episodes uh this and color truth are written by deborah pratt history and color truth we talked about this in that episode she really pushed to do that episode in the first season which it was Right. Belisario did not want to do that episode in the first season. He thought that was a season two or season three episodes or, or season three episode because he did not think the audience was ready to see Sam as a black man. And luckily the head of NBC was on Pratt's side and they did the episode in the first season. This trilogy of episodes was originally going to be at the end of the third season, we would have had something like this sooner in the series. Yeah. And this touches on, and I've, and I've said this before in, in previous episodes, as much as I love Quantum Leap, I think it would have ultimately had been a stronger show if Deborah Pratt had more creative control throughout the run. And I yeah. feel Belisario held the show back in a lot of ways because he did not trust the audience. Now, as far as this specific episode, I think this episode is maybe the weakest of the three Mm. episodes. But I think that may just be the nature of it's, it's a trilogy. So it's kind of setting up the world to pay off with episodes two and episodes Three. So I can kind of give this first episode a pass. 
And I'll also throw this in here. I'm surprised that they didn't start doing episodes like this earlier in the series because I think oh, gosh, yeah. had the show had the show gone on, they would have probably done more two three part episodes like this. And I'm surprised that they didn't start doing it earlier because it seems from a production standpoint, it would be a money saver. Well, because you get to build a world, you get to build sets and costumes or whatever, and instead of just spending one episode in this world, you get to spend two or three episodes in the world, and you save some money yeah. on production costs. So I'm surprised that they didn't start doing this earlier in the series. I, I totally agree with you, and I think that one of the things that I neglected to factor in to my thought process is that it would be unfair to judge this episode separate from Quantum Leap on its own because it is indeed just the first part of the story. And so I think that there is no answer to my initial question because it is just the beginning. And whereas I can still look at it and say, I like this as an episode of Quantum Leap, I don't necessarily have to make the, you know, any sort of like quality or value judgment on it based on its storytelling separate from that. Um, because there are going to be two more parts. I think that, you know, the thing that kind of reminded me of, um, that I was reminded of as you were talking about if they had done more of this, and I agree they should have done more of this, um, it made me think of Star Trek Enterprise. We're not a Star Trek podcast, I know. It's been but, uh, a long road. <laughs> Yeah, all right. That, their theme song from the beginning was like the season five theme from Quantum Leap. It was just shit from the get go, you know. You, you know what? I'm I'm gonna throw this out there. You know what's worse than season five Quantum Leap theme song, or worse than the theme from Enterprise? Oh boy, what the theme and opening credits to Picard? Fight me, fight me, Larry Ganny, come Ooh. at me. Those See, are the only, those are the only that is the only Star Trek opening credit theme that every time I'm like skip 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 I don't care skip long boring pretentious skip. I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I like it. I think it's more meditative. I think it's more reflective of the show at the beginning. I have not finished it yet, and I will certainly say that this show, the first three or four episodes of the show, are from what I have read and heard, feel very different from the back end of the show. And I don't know how I'm going to feel about that yet. But anyway, my point was going to be that with Enterprise, the final season, they started doing more two and three part episodes and fans really, really were enjoying them and thought that it gave them an opportunity to tell bigger stories and to do it in a way that seemed more in line with the with how television had been moving. And certainly even with how you know, Deep Space Nine had functioned over its last few seasons, and with the way Voyager had had, you know, two episode, uh, uh, a lot of two-parters, and even multi-episode arcs that went beyond two parts, and that, you know, third season of, of Enterprise aside, that had kind of its overall season arc, the way that they were telling stories in that final season gave the stories a real chance to breathe in a lot of ways. And how many times have you and I commented on Quantum Leap that it would have been nice to spend a little more time in a certain location or with certain characters? And I think that I think that today, you know, if there is a reboot, it would behoove them to do something like that, to spend more time on leaps and 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 it would give them an opportunity to really let those stories breathe. I think that 
one of the things we'll be talking about two episodes from now when we get to the end of this is that the the entire trilogy benefits so much from the world building that can take place from the community from the you know the fact that the town and these family dramas and these secrets start to you know really have a, a long term impact. It's not a case of you learn something in you know Act Two that pays off in Act Three and then the episode's over. This is something where you get to have you know really strong divides because of the decades you know moving but at the same time you're still living in the same world and i think that the device of having sam leap into different people and the circumstances of his leap out you know his his, his leaps out are are really uh, uh intriguing um so it, as i was reading about Deborah Pratt saying that this was uh, well not even saying it was it was contemporary she was saying that this was something they were doing in season 3 um, it would be very interesting to to know what she thinks now, you know, looking back, um, knowing that she was excited to do it in season three. Uh, I will say that apparently based on some of the stuff that I read, it sounds like the initial idea for the trilogy was Belisario's, that he wanted to do something like this. Now, how much of the actual story was his, I don't know. He basically, you know, told Deborah Pratt to go off and write it. It feels like this was all Deborah Pratt. Like, maybe maybe Belisario was like, you know what would be cool is if we did a three-parter, and Sam was, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and he leaped into a different person each time, but he was in the same town, or there was, you know, something. Maybe there's a murder mystery. Maybe that was all he gave her, because everything else about it feels very much Deborah Pratt. Feels very much so, and I was reminded of that in... The, the opening dialogue in the first scene between Sam and uh, the deputy sheriff, Bo. Yeah. And just like, you know, as, as they're, you know, as they're carrying uh, Bart Ader, as they're carrying the body, just the, the entire conversation as they're, they're in the, you know, we, we can't take him to the dock because Doc's out somewhere delivering 16, 17 kids, whatever. Ah, Cajuns, you know. Yeah, his casual <laughs> racism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's just um, already, like, right from the beginning, like, it the world feels very lived in and like this is its own TV show, like its own little world. And this, the entire feel of this just kind of has a feel of early nineties television and the heat of the night. Yes. Other show, other shows like that. Like I could totally imagine like this, you know, this, you know, Pottersville, Louisiana, just being the subject of of another entire TV series that Sam just happens to pop into. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that the other thing that we get right off the bat, it's like there, there is no disguising or masking the Southern Gothic vibe of this episode, and I don't think that was the intent at all anyway. But right from the get-go, you know, I mean, we're, we're like in a swamp, there's a dead body, you know, Sam is standing there with the oar. Uh, I love the leap in. I think it creates a, a great, you know, narrative mystery right off the bat, right off the oar. <laughs> Um, so, so, so I think that there's, there's this great atmosphere, there's this great, you know, hook, um, and, and, and it, and it propels itself nicely. Um, Stephen Lee is the actor who plays Bo. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but he's someone that, uh, I think is very easy to recognize. Um, he, uh, had, up until... Uh, Quantum Leap, and then, of course, long after, had been in numerous uh, television programs uh, and films. And, you know, just to name a, a few, you know, early on in his career, he started off uh, with Heart to Heart, Remington Steel. Um, he would go on to do, uh, you know, guest spots in various shows. Looks like he had his first 
a recurring role on Gung Ho. Um, uh, films, he played the big bopper in La Bamba, actually. Um, he had done um, uh, a small part in RoboCop 2, um, some soap opera work here and there. Uh, he was also in a couple of episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, I literally just watched, uh, two days ago, uh, an episode of Babylon 5 that he is in. I'm doing a Babylon 5 rewatch right now. Um, so lots of genre shows, lots of mysteries, lots uh, of comedies. I mean, really all over the place. Clearly a versatile actor, um, could do a, a lot of different things, um, and, and fairly recognizable. Um, later in his career, Dark Angel, Nash Bridges, ER, Grey's Anatomy, Boston Legal, uh, his last appearance all due respect to those who have passed was in a film called Burlesque which may be one of the worst movies ever made so oh no well he unfortunately <laughs> went out on kind of a low note but hey. but before that oh, hey, he got okay. paid he got paid goddamn he, he got he got a paycheck and that's what and that's what matters. And he's great in this. And one of the things that's interesting about his role in this episode, and, and is a testament, I think, to the story that is being told over all three episodes, is that he gets a lot of screen time up front, and then he kind of disappears. We don't see a lot of him throughout the rest of the episode. And, you know, spoiler alert, he comes back, so we will see him again. So I think it's actually a really great idea because it, it, it immediately we know who this person is. So when we see him again, there's been this wonderful setup done. We don't need to be reintroduced to him or anything like that. But he's not essential to the plot of this episode in particular. So I, I thought that was really well uh, uh, done uh, as well. A uh, good choice on Deborah Pratt's part. I do. I like the, this first scene with Sam. I like his scene later on when Lita goes after Abigail in the sheriff's office. Yeah. And it's just like this, this little bit of subtle comedy throughout the scene of, of, uh, uh what's the sheriff? I, of Stratton. Oh yeah. It threw me. WK Stratton is played by, Oh, WK Stratton plays Lawrence Stanton. That's what, yeah. that's my confusion. The, yeah. The lawyer, yeah. Yeah. When the lawyer keeps interjecting and Bo's just like, no, oh, stop soliciting in the office. Just, it, yeah, I, yeah. I appreciated that, that little subtle you know, comedy in there. And he does a good job of that throughout the episode because even early on, there's the moment where Sam gets in the passenger seat, which is a great moment, too. And it's something that we've not gotten a lot of. It's the reminder that Sam has no clue where he is. He has no clue where he's going. It's this wonderful moment where it's like Sam is like, I'm going to slip into the passenger seat. And Bo is just like, oh, I guess I'm driving then. And and, yeah, yeah, so Stephen Lee does a great job of injecting some humor into an otherwise pretty heavy, dark episode. We also, of course, get the revelation of Abigail having found the body. Um, that is another really strong setup because, I, I mean, I think anyone can connect to like the idea of a child finding a dead body. It's like, it, it, you know, that, that immediately gives you a kind of an eerie, you know, icky kind of sense. So, um, I thought that that was, that was great. Uh, and then of course, driving home, um, to, to the sheriff's house. And of course we see Abigail, um, and their maid Marie, um, right off the yeah. bat. As well. well, there's, there's something, Sam has an immediate reaction to learning that his quote, his daughter discovered the body and he yeah. wants to get home and make sure she, that she's okay. And you, I want to unpack that a little bit. Where does that come from? Is that just Sam? Is it him melding a little bit with his leapy or where we know where the story is going 
does he already have this like weird otherworldly cosmic whatever you want to, to describe like connection with Abigail or, or a little bit of all of the above because I'm, Sam is always shows concern but he shows like uber hyper concern like as soon as he finds out that his yeah. daughter discovered the body he, he's very sensitive to a lot of things in this episode honestly but that is, is clearly uh, um, his most you know, sensitive area has anything to do with Abigail. I think for me, um, you know, my, my initial thought was that there, that it was some of the, 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 the melding, you know, the, the psycho, whatever. The synergizing. Terms. Yeah. Yeah. Psycho synergizing. Um, the idea that, you know, that there's this other thing out there, um, I'm going to have to revisit that and think about that again when we get to the, you know, get to part three, I think, because it's difficult. F- I, 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 I'm kind of trying to ride this fine line of, of talking only about this episode in the context of itself and saving comments for the whole until we get to the third part um, for two reasons. One, I honestly don't remember a whole lot of the next two episodes. I, I really don't. I, I thought about that as, as I came to the conclusion of this episode. I was like, man, I really don't remember that much about Trilogy, and I was surprised by that. So part of me kind of just wants to be surprised by it. Um, and, and the other thing being is I just, I want to give this episode its own due. Uh, so for me, in that frame of mind, I will say that I think it's just the psycho-synergizing and just kind of Sam himself being very um, rubbed a little raw by this. We also get a, uh, an interesting line where he says that uh, he, he actually quantifies that he's leapt into a situation where he's confronted by a dead body two other times. Um, Matt Dale points out in his book that there were actually three occasions. However, I discount Goodnight Dear Heart, and the reason why I do that is because it, it, it's a very different setting. I'm, I, I personally, when I'm thinking of Sam, that Sam's referring to, are Dreams and Play It Against Seymour. Because those are the two episodes where he literally sees like a fresh dead body. And sure, we could quibble over the freshness of this dead body, but the idea being that it's not in like a clinical setting. Whereas in Goodnight, Dear Heart, it's a very clinical kind of, you know, she's on the table, she's, you know. Especially in Played Against Seymour, kind of somewhat similar to this, it's the question of did the person he leap into do it? Yeah. Which I like that that is is kind of pushed to the wayside almost immediately. That's not going to be the mystery here. Um, that the mystery here is is, is more involved. Um, when we see him with Abigail, it really kind of reinforces that idea that he is melding a bit with Clayton Fuller. Uh, you know, especially when they're sitting on the bench, um, the porch swing together and he's, you know, he's kind of singing the song. Um, I also couldn't help but get kind of a, a weird sort of Atticus and Scout Finch vibe here mm-hmm. in the quality of the relationship, especially knowing that Clayton Fuller's older. He's not like, this isn't like some guy in like his, you know, late twenties, early thirties with a 10 year old daughter or, or even mid thirties. Like he looks like he's in his, you know, mid to late forties from the mirror image. Um, and, and that was, uh, you know, an aspect of, of the scout Atticus relationships. Atticus was older. Um, obviously there are some fundamental differences, but, but I did get that vibe. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, what did you think? What did you think as far as what was propelling his sensitivity to Abigail and his, and his overall protectiveness of her other than just Sam being a good guy? I, I think a little bit of mix of melding with his 
his leap B. And I think we're about to see a scene where I think it's definitely, definitely implied like he's melding with his leap B totally. a little bit. And also I can't help but wonder if it was intentional, like anything, like some kind of like special connection with Abigail because yeah. of what happens in the next two episodes, if they were trying to set that up and because it's watching the episode with Betsy last night and when, cause who, she has never seen these three episodes uh, she was even surprised that Quantum Leap was even like going so far as to do like a trilogy of episodes, like all set in the same town. Yeah. And when we got to the end of the episode, she was like, "Ah, ooh, 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 oh yeah, we're gonna ooh, get there. <laughs> ooh, that's weird." Um, so I think, yeah, it is knowing where the episodes are going. It, I think I kind of felt that way because it is kind of weird to watch Sam interact with Abigail as a father figure, knowing where this is going and we, we've had some people um, I, I feel horrible I'm blanking on her name she used to comment on our page all the time and she's dropped off the last several months but she had some very strong feelings about Sam's behavior in this trilogy yeah of, of episodes and not being Diana no uh, no no no, oh, okay. no not okay. not uh, I can't remember her name sure, I'll go sure, back and sure. look it up yeah um, but yeah she's she dropped off several months ago but anyway it, it's it's hard to not look at that in that context. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth talking about. There's no doubt about that. And I think, you know, we'll talk more about it at the end of this episode, beginning of the next episode. But I I will say that as far as this being, you know, so steeped in themes related to the Southern Gothic genre, that incest in particular factors heavily into Southern Gothic as a genre. Um, you know, Faulkner used it a lot. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it, it was a it was just a way to add a level of sort of grotesque to um, to stories that already had a very dark grotesque vibe um, you know the to other sort of hallmarks of the genre include like violence which obviously we get here uh, you know family secrets which obviously we get here uh, poverty which we don't get displayed explicitly but we get it talked about in a I mean a, a story defining moment that takes place before this episode ever starts um, so I, I think that thematically the without it being overt the implication perhaps of some sort of incestuous relationship um, is, is, is potentially a part of that you know the trappings of Southern Gothic. Now, what it means specifically for this story, I think that's certainly worth worth talking about. Um, as but while we're at, here, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, while we're here, should we talk about Kimberly Cullum? Let's do it. The actor who plays uh, who plays uh, Abigail. She is a former child actor now, uh, listed on her IMDb page. Her last on-screen credit is Nothing Sacred, a TV series from 1998. She was apparently part of the miscellaneous crew in The Amazing Spider-Man. I saw that, yeah. I wonder if that's a type of, like, if there's it's another Kimberly Cullum who, who worked on Amazing Spider-Man and they just got the names mixed up. Right. Um, I do remember her. She was also, again, we are not a Star Trek podcast, uh, but she was in an episode uh, of Star Trek The Next Generation, and she had a few other regular roles up through 98 and then moved on with her life and started doing something else. 
Yeah. <laughs> Worth noting that she had a really interesting role uh, because it was an episode where Data like loses his memory in a, in a crash, sure. and she's a little girl that kind of like helps take care of him along with her father, and they develop an interesting relationship, which I think, uh, especially considering what Picard did with Data's character, um, I think that if, if I were to put together some episodes for people to maybe watch before Picard, I might actually throw thine own self in there. In the Interesting, mix, okay, due yeah. to that. But, but anyway, um, yeah, I, you know, I go back and forth on her in this episode. I know there, there are some people out there, especially on Al's Place message boards, that do not like her at all. Um, but I think she does a, a great job. Um, you know, she does exactly what she needs to do. Some of the scenes are very, very well done. Um, you know, there might be a couple of misses here, but, you know, she's, she's like, what, like a 12-year-old girl? I mean, come sure. On. She won the Young Artist Award for Best Young Actress guest starring in a television series for this uh, yeah. for this trilogy episode. And again, I, she does come across as a little extra, but I never chalked it up to... Uh, I never chalked it up to the acting. I chalked it up to, like, Abigail is just a little extra. Yeah. Totally. I yeah. agree. I completely agree. And I think sometimes it is difficult to to separate those two uh, mm-hmm. sometimes for people, um, especially if it's something that's jarring or hits on a nerve. I mean, I, on this last watch through, I mean, I, I thought she was fantastic so it didn't bother me at all but um also of course uh marie the the maid we've seen her before um um and now i'm blanking on what episode it was in fran bennett is the is the actor um what episode was it It was it justice it was justice um she was also in justice um and oh that's yeah ada um so yeah yeah uh, so we have seen her before. It's nice to have her back. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, this, this, there's an interesting... Again, it, it reminded me a little bit of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is also something that fits in the Southern Gothic genre. You know, the idea that, we, you know, we have this, this maid um, um, relationship clearly with Abigail to the point where later on in the episode, um, you know, Sam, to keep Abigail safe, basically sends her home with Marie. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I, I, I like that. I mean, we could sit here, obviously, and, and, and talk all day about, you know, the trope of the black maid in, in the southern town in the 50s, but, I mean, it's not like it wasn't true, so... <laughs> I mean, why, why spend a lot of time talking about something that, that's factual? <laughs> true, yes, exactly. And to throw back to another southern gothic episode, I'm not absolutely sure about this, but when they were doing, like, the the panning shot towards the beginning of the episode, like, kind of, like, establishing this small-town world, I'm pretty sure, like, there, there's, like, a big house in the shot, and I'm pretty sure that that's the same exterior that was used in So Help Me God. For the okay. for the I can't remember the family's name, but the big yep. family, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the same exterior. Yeah, interesting. Um, also worth noting, since we're talking about that that panning shot at the beginning, we also get a prolonged shot of a well, which is going to come back to play later in the story, and it's one of those things that since it's a three part episode. They can do that, and it's just—it's yeah. just like the the camera just lingers on that well just for a couple more seconds, then just long enough to know, huh? I bet that's going to come back later. 
It, yeah, it, well, it, one of the things, too, that's uh, uh, worth mentioning is that the overall quality of, of filmmaking, if you will, on this episode is fantastic. The cinematography is great. Um, there's there's a lot of dynamic shots within the, the episode. Um, the, the scene in the sheriff's office... Um, between uh, uh, Sam and Will is really well done. The the other the accusation scene that's done in the sheriff's mm-hmm. uh, building is incredibly well done, considering how many characters you had there um, on screen uh, at varying times. So it, it's a really well shot episode. There's a lot of artistry you can tell that went into to crafting this overall. Um, and I think that you know it's got to be a testament to the fact that somebody like James Whitmore Jr. had worked on the show so many times, and Deborah Pratt had worked on the show so many times, and I would imagine that they worked really really well together in you know kind of crafting this overall vision for it and then being able to of course just kind of let the actors go um, and do their thing um, so after our, our, our scene um, here out on the um, the porch Abigail and Sam go back inside it's you know time for her to go to bed um, Sam is um, you know convinced that she's going to bed uh, he hears something he turns around and uh there's this woman in a nightgown in the doorway. Just staring in there. Yeah. What is that about? Just a striking-looking woman, whether or not you want to call her beautiful or creepy or a little bit of both. That's entirely up to you. But, uh, yeah. And then, of course, she disappears. And then Sam sees Abigail in the hallway. Um, Good night, Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Sam has been talking to Al, and so Abigail has already kind of come into the room. Um, to interrupt because she thinks that Sam is talking to her mother who yeah. at this point we think is dead um, yeah. and uh, uh, we get the kind of the revelation from Al that there's really no information like Ziggy has nothing on any of this so they don't know what he's there to do they don't really know much about any of the people involved it's all pretty sketchy so he's having trouble digging stuff up uh, Sam gets pretty antagonistic towards Al at this point you know like Help me out, man. Like I do, I, I, I love the exchange of, of, of Al trying to fake it, of like, well, you're a sheriff, you're blah, 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 you're 40s, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I know that one. And then Al admitting, like, oh. And what I, what I do appreciate is that there's an actual reason why Al does not have information. It's not Ziggy's on the fritz. It's not some, some bullshit made-up reason. It's because there's a flood in 1971, and all the town records are washed away, and that's why they have a hard time finding anything. Yeah. I appreciated that. Uh, I appreciate Sam's outfit in this scene. I enjoy it. His, his, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the costumes. Hey, Jean Paul did a great job. Jean Pierre, excuse me. Jean Pierre did a yeah. great job on this one. Um, costumes are great, which is another thing that helps to kind of really draw us into the world. Yeah, um, but what did you say? Like Sam's antagonistic, and also he talks about you know like oh yeah, my daughter came across came across a dead body. Like Sam is invested. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because that was definitely something that stood out to me too. Is that he doesn't say Abigail, he you know, or anything. He says my daughter, yeah, um, which I think is really interesting. There is a strain throughout the course of the episode and indeed the entire trilogy, which is something we'll delve into further as we you know go on. But there is this strain of ownership over the person of Abigail, um, and I find that fascinating. There are a lot of characters that feel very protective of her, but in a very, not that they want to control her necessarily, you know, but there's, there's sort of, there's a proprietary nature to it. It's Mm. not, it's not, it's not just like there, there's clearly something about her that they're very drawn to. 
um, and we'll we'll get more into that later. But um, the woman that we see in the doorway, of course, we know is at this point we don't know, but we come to find out is Laura Fuller, who is um, Clayton's wife, Abigail's uh, mother. Um, again, at this point, we think she's dead. So for all we know, we're seeing a ghost. Uh, that ghost uh, is played by Meg Foster. Uh, Meg Foster is someone who's had a very lengthy career in film and television. I remember her, most of all, as playing Evil Lynn in the Masters of the Universe uh, film, <laughs> yeah. um, which also starred Scott Bakula's uh, uh, wife, Chelsea Field. Um, Interesting. Okay. Tila, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, just tons of stuff. She started her career in 1969 and is still uh, working um, right up until uh, today um, with uh, a few things in post-production. Um, right now. So uh, just, yeah, an incredibly lengthy career. Pretty Little Liars, um, something, you know, recent that she uh, has been on. Um, uh, and there's, there's a ton of stuff. Uh, Sliders, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, Murder, She Wrote, ER, um, and, and again, lots of film and television throughout the, the 80s and 90s, uh, and again, working right up until today. I think she has, uh, again, just a, a striking look, um, a perfect look, for this this character, you know, there's something about her that is that is very beautiful, while also very haunting. Um, so it just works perfectly for the role, especially considering that she has zero lines through the course of the episode. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I was thinking of the upcoming episode. Here's yeah. my question: She is billed as special guest star, mm. Meg Foster. And looking back through her IMDb page, like she has a, she's had a prolific career, but I was like, what makes her the special guest star? Her agent. Yes. Brokering a good deal. And that's, and that's what I was thinking. Like, that's a thing that you negotiate, like how you are billed, you know, she's billed first of the guest stars and she's billed as special guest star. And I was like, what, what was that beyond, like you said, her agent getting her a good deal. And, you know, here's something too. This entire trilogy has a dynamite cast, and I'm not necessarily saying that they broke the bank on this episode, that all of these, you know, are like huge names or whatever, but they're, they're known quantities. Like, you know, these, we're, we're not getting like a young Jennifer Aniston or something like that, which she was great and nowhere to run, don't get me wrong, but clearly at that point you're taking a chance on a young actor who impressed you in an audition or, you know, whatever. Whereas in this episode, with the exception of Abigail, and even then, um, uh, 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 we just talked about her and said her name many times. Um, <laughs> Kimberly Cullum. Yeah, thank you, Kimberly Cullum. Um, you know, had had done work before. All of these actors had worked before, and some of them had worked on Quantum Leap before. And even those that hadn't had, you know, a, a fairly lengthy career prior to this episode. So I I just get the strong sense that there was a lot of care given to these episodes. That there was nothing throwaway about any of this. That there was definitely. I think an intent behind doing this. And I think that you're right. That probably the intent was if we can successfully do a story like this, there's no reason why we can't do more in the future. Unfortunately, they never got that opportunity, but I do think and believe strongly that they were laying some groundwork here for what they hoped to do in season six and beyond. Yeah. And speaking of breaking the bank, they got Max Wright. I was totally thinking of him from, from (laughs) Alf, from Alf. That's right, playing Doc Kinman um, and his son, Will Kinman, which we'll, we'll talk a lot about Will. Um, unfortunately, Max Wright passed away last year. Um, Age 75. A long, yeah. 
a long ripe age, and good for him. He he did he did some more roles after afterwards. I, I'm sure you know you've read about this. What the 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 shit show of working on Alf was. No, actually, I know very little about that. Uh, it was something I can't remember why. It was like one of those things, like BuzzFeed. It was like one story that got repeated by a lot of sources, like at the time, like three or four years ago, just talking about. It had come out just what a horrible experience was for the for the cast working yeah. on Alf was because it was all centered around Alf the alien, the human characters all took a backseat and apparently like the way the, like the set was built, like the way the floor was built so that the puppet could be moved around. It was just a horrible experience for the actors because like 90% of their job was just figuring out how to walk around on the set while they were trying to act. Oh my God. And I just, yeah, heard I it, was, can imagine. It, it was just generally a horrible experience for everyone working on that show. Man, Alf had its moment in time, though. There's no doubt. I know there was oh. a moment there where I was crazy about it. My parents didn't want me to watch it for whatever reason. I don't know. It was one of those, like, I I watched, like, maybe a couple episodes here and there, but other than the gimmick of it. Right. Oh, that, yeah. yeah, that was all there was for me, too. Yeah, it was no it was no Mr. Belvedere. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Um, so, so anyway, uh, we also get, of course, the goodnight daddy thing that you mentioned uh, a second ago after Sam looks out the door to see that Laura Fuller is not there, but, but Abigail is still down the hall. And this is, like, up until this point, we had not seen Abigail be creepy, really. Yeah. Now we get to see her be creepy. And I think that this helps to add a very you know chilling vibe to the overall texture of the episode and and plants the seed no pun intended um that we may very well be looking at the killer in this little girl sure but i mean in the scene she's creepy in just the way Kids can be creepy sometimes. <laughs> I mean, a few months ago, after we got Harrison into a more regular sleeping routine, there was one morning I was doing yoga, like in the back sunroom, open room, whatever it is, behind our kitchen. And it was like 5.30 in the morning. I'm doing yoga. I got my AirPods in. I got music softly playing. And I'm just sitting point, like I'm just sitting there cross-legged on the ground. I'm just doing like a few breaths and a few meditations. And I look over. And in the dining room, there's just a little silhouette of a human being just standing there silently watching me do yoga. (laughs) Just creeping on me, not saying anything, just watching me. Kids are kids are just creepy that way sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 at this point in the episode, too, that I noted that I felt like the other than good night, dear heart, this is really the only like well done sort of southern gothic ghost story vibe episode that we get i'm looking at you mm-hmm. for Troyan. um so <laughs> that was in so, california that's not even I, like I trying know, to be yeah. i know yeah. um so uh, uh i i really appreciate that that vibe because it gives us this otherworldly vibe which i think without that um there's the episode becomes a little bit more mundane and, and, it, and it sits more in that sort of heat of the night thing like you were talking about earlier, uh, which is great. And it's still Southern Gothic, but it's not necessarily 
grotesque. It's not necessarily other. There's no spectral quality to it. And and this element of trilogy and of this episode definitely enhances. Uh, it's not one of those odd contrivances that makes you kind of go, wait, wh- why are they doing this? Mm-hmm. It really works, and, and, and I like it. And I think especially with what we learn about Laura later in the episode, uh, it just, I don't know, it adds something to, to this stew uh, that Deborah Pratt has cooked up for us, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Sure. Um, so we get to the next morning. Yeah. And well, also, it's worth noting real quick that Abigail has said that, you know, she and Daddy are going to go for a picnic the next day. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's important because the scene, the picnic scene, is very important. Yeah. So the the next day we also meet Lita Ader. We yes, meet Doc. We, do. we meet uh, Doc Kinman. Uh, Lita, you know, like you said, she is a wonderful actor. Play uh, Mary Gordon Murray, kind of here and there, uh, resume on IMDb. Like she just kind of sporadic, like very active up until this point, until the mid nineties, and then she drops off until like two thousand one, two thousand three, and then she just like she comes back, comes back every few years and does a thing. Right. Uh, yeah. She is very effective in this episode. Yes. She. Oh, yeah. Just sometimes you feel like you actually like pull somebody out of that world and drop them in, and she just, yeah, she feels like she lives in this world. Yeah, it, you know the thing that's that's fascinating too about her character is that if you you don't get much time to think about it, but if you do take a moment to think about the fact that we're looking at a woman who's lost her young daughter and now her husband, um, it's it's hard not to sympathize with her. And granted, you know, she takes it too far, as we come to find out. I do think if there's one potential critique that I would give the episode, it's that she does get played and pushed into villain of the week territory sometimes. And mm-hmm. I and, and, and I wish that early on in the episode, um, prior to the picnic scene, for instance, especially a lot of her anger and her rage and everything is so justified. And there's a really tender scene between she and Sam after they view her husband's body outside. Yeah. Um, you know, where he, he, he just, he asks her if he can get her a glass of water or anything. Yeah. You know, but it's a really nice moment. And, and, and I think that again, it's a 45 minute show. There's only so much you can do. You know, you, you've got a, a bad guy in the episode basically, and we know that it's going to be her, but, but I think that it's, it's one of those weird things where we talk about if we would have spent a little more time, I think that her character overall would have been very effective. Not that she's not, but it would have been a very different thing, and I think it's unnecessary, so I get it. I, it's a very, very minor nitpick, but it is interesting to me to kind of think of this world where we don't necessarily see her as being that that villain at all, you know? Sure, I got you. Up until the moment where it's inevitable that we see her that way. Yeah, it was uh, as we were watching the episode last night. Betsy was in and out, like trying to get Harrison like fully into bed, whatever. And so she came back at one point, and I was like, "Oh, this is Lita. She's a piece of work." <laughs> then we get to the end of the episode, and she sets the house on fire, and Betsy's like, "Oh, she is a piece of work." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Man. So in th- uh, this uh, series of scenes here, we learn—I can't remember exactly where—but we learned that. Bart wasn't actually dead when Abigail came up upon her. She, he was actually yelling at her over something, and Abigail saw him slip and fall. So this brings up the question of, well, did he slip and fall, or did Abigail have something 
to do with it. Even right. even Doc has some suspicions, and I really want to want to point out the the scene between uh, between Doc and Sam and Al because. I feel like it's been a while since we've had a really good scene where Al has, where, where Sam has two conversations at the same yeah. time, and he manages to mask them pretty well. Yep. You know what I mean? Oh he's yeah. Been, he's been doing this for a while. He's a pro. This scene, in general, in my opinion, is a wonderful callback in many ways because it brings back Al's dislike for dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a nice character touch for him, and, and and recalls other moments that we've seen with him in similar situations. We do get Sam kind of, you know, masterfully navigating the, the dual conversations that are taking place. Uh, we get this wonderful sense of all three of these people discovering pieces of information. Um, mm-hmm independent of one another and yet at the same time together and having kind of like these these wonderful shared revelations um it's it's a really well done scene and again it's another one of those scenes that's just shot really well too Mm -hmm. um especially there's there's a moment where we get uh the shot and it it shows all three of our characters but they're all in different levels and like Mm -hmm. as as you know someone with a theater background it was such an interesting picture like i could see that on stage and it would be an interesting stage picture because you've got Doc Kinman kind of standing upright, you know, on, on your, your stage right area, basically. You've got Sam hunched over the body in, in the middle, and then you've got Al in the foreground with his back turned to them. And it's just a really interesting stage because right, a lot yeah. of depth and a lot of, you know, different heights. Um, so, I, again, just the craft work that went into everything is, is, is really well done. Um, and, and, it, and it's a, a scene that provides us with more context for uh, Bart's death and raises probably in some ways more questions than it actually answers. Sure. Yeah. Uh, which is another cool element of the scene. Worth noting at this point that Doc Kinman, we've already met his son uh, at this point, Will Kinman, who's played by Travis Fine. Um, and, and clearly that character, um, if not the actor, that character is going to be extremely important uh, to the, the overall texture of trilogy. Um, he uh, started off working as a child actor um, in the early 80s. Um, he had done lots of film and television. Um, he played uh, the role of Shelton in Child's Play 3 in 1991, which is something that I recognized him from right away. Uh, he was in 51 episodes of The Young Writers, which is worth noting that uh, David Anthony Marshall worked on that show. We actually talked about that show. Well, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. When we interviewed him. Uh, he'd go on to do a couple episodes of JAG, um, you know, lots of, again, lots of film, television, um, Girl Interrupted. Uh, most recently, he did a few episodes of Family Law. That was back in 2001. Uh, looks like there was actually a take about Space Between in 2010. He played an airline pilot. So not a lot recently as an actor, um, but lots of other credits, uh, writing, directing, producing uh, as well. So uh, we get introduced to that character. We'll talk a little bit more about him uh, here in a second. Uh W.K. Stratton, who plays Stanton, um, we've seen him before as uh, Doc Berger in Genesis, and he played the sheriff in Goodnight, Dear Heart, which of course yeah. this episode, I think, thematically uh, has some links to. Um, it's interesting that they bring him back, um, and uh, he does a great job. The scene that we get him in is a scene with multiple characters in the sheriff's office as the accusations begin to fly. Lita is just kind of starting to lose her shit on... Um, Abigail and the scene is incredibly well done because we get a strong sense 
of who's on Abigail's side, who might be kind of in the middle, and who is most certainly not. And I and I just think I just think it's a really well done scene. It's a real really well shot scene. Um, the relationship between Sam and Abigail is strengthened. Um, we get some good definition for Will. We get some really good definition for uh, uh, Stanton, um, who we'll we'll see again. So I, I think it's just one of the highlights of the episode, honestly. And it's and mm-hmm. it's it's like a dramatically high scene. Um, without there necessarily being any triggers pulled. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just adding tension on, uh, and it's just, I think it's very well done. And it also seems to start to maybe create some interesting questions in Sam's mind. Not necessarily that he's doubting Abigail, but after this scene and when we get to the picnic, he's got questions and he wants them answered. Mm-hmm. And he has, so. he has her best interests at heart, but yeah. Yeah. It- yeah. Like I, said, I was watching the episode last night. I, I kept thinking, like, how interesting it would have. This would have been a totally different story. Like, how sure. interesting would it have been? Like, had had they gone truly down the bad seed road, and it turns out Abigail was right, the killer. Yeah, it would have been interesting. I, I, I don't think Quantum Leap would have gone there. I don't yeah, think it would have I, ever gone there. But it's interesting. Yeah. Like you said, it would have been a very very different episode. Um, and it is also a point out because it's going to come back to play later on in the story. We also find out that Sam's wife, Laura, she had a very violent childhood in that her mom killed all of her kids and then killed herself. And Laura was able to escape by hiding under a bed. But she heard, if not witnessed, her siblings being murdered, which ultimately led to her mental illness later on down the road. Yeah. One of the things that's very interesting about this revelation, too, is that it comes from Will Kinman. And we get... Playing into that Southern Gothic, uh, you know, quite frankly, it's not an easy subject to discuss, especially for parents of young children, but uh, pedophilia is something that often factors into Southern Gothic as well. Um, or, or statutory rape, or you know, things of that nature. Yeah, it's worth noting that Will is not a young boy by any measure. He's not a man, you know. He's definitely, you know, probably a teenager, but he's yeah. certainly older than Abigail. Certainly, yeah. And there's the a way one, that yeah. he talks about Abigail, and in and particular, the way he flirts with her later on. Yeah, and how beautiful he says that she is. Is interesting. Yeah. Well, to, to touch on that, there's a there's an earlier moment where Doc and Sam are talking, and Doc makes the line talking about Violet, Lita's daughter. He makes some line like, "Aside from your little girl, she was the prettiest girl in the parish," mm-hmm. which jumped out at me. And also, like Betsy, first time watching the episode, she was like, "Gross." Yeah. Yeah, and again, it plays into the idea that, and Abigail is the only child that we really see, uh, you know, we see Violet in a flashback, but it plays into this idea that there is this sort of proprietary nature that a lot of these characters have over Abigail. And I'm not saying that it's this insidious, you know, sexual lusting for her or anything like that. I'm not saying that it's it's, it's it's some sort of display of pedophilia or whatever, but it is... It is in. It, it, it just strikes a very interesting note, especially with where trilogy goes, um, and 
the way that the character of Abigail, when we meet her, she's 10 years old, but the way that that character will be sexualized over the course of the trilogy, and indeed, even at the end of this very episode, it is worth noting that Will, who, I'm, what, we're guessing, at at his youngest is probably, what, 16? Maybe, yeah, 15, 16 years old, yeah. But but might even be older, might be more like 17, 18. Yeah. um, Is clearly displaying kind of a a certain amount of affection towards her. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and that, that actually was the first thing in my head, is that because we get this story through him, it does create an interesting sense of the unreliable narrator. Like, this is a story that he heard, basically. And so as he relays all this information to Sam, you you know, we take it as a viewer, I think we take it as the truth. And sure. we do come to find out based on what Al is able to discover that it does seem to be the truth. Mm-hmm. That said, it's not like we're witness to this. It's not like Laura Fuller tells us this is what happened. We are hearing it from a young man who wasn't even alive when it happened, who's heard it from somebody else, who probably heard it from somebody else, which also gives us this great sense of like the way that a community, those stories, those secrets, those darknesses that live underneath can just kind of infect everything and everyone and, and, and be this, like clearly for Will, it's something that he has to, I don't know, it, 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 it's just kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. And to touch on... You talk about how the, the the sexual the sexualization of Abigail and the, and the way this is done and, and how young she is. I can't help but think of uh, it was like two or three years ago when Millie Bobby Brown, who plays Eleven mm. on Stranger Things, mm-hmm. and she I, I can't remember if it was People Magazine or, or some similar magazine. Like she was like listed as like one of the, like the sexiest people of the year yeah. or something. And there was a big discussion about like she is a little girl. Don't sexualize her. And, yeah. you know, like even like some like men like being called out because like they had made some comments along those lines. And yeah. <laughs> you, you just looked over your shoulder. Oh, yeah. um, we, we've got a guest. We've got a guest star, especially guest oh, star. Oh, hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? Looks like she's napped hard. Yeah. <laughs> or hardly napped. Or yeah. Um. That Dennis, can you say "oh boy," "oh boy," "hi"? <laughs> um. Yeah. So to jump back to what we we're saying. Sorry, we, we were talking about Millie Bobby Brown so, and, and how some men and yeah. And so, and I wonder if, and I'm not excusing the behavior. I'm not excusing comments made along those lines. No, but to kind of like touching on on. on the way people talk about Abigail and the way Will talks about Abigail and we, what we know of eventually the relationship is sometimes I think there's a thing that men, at least straight men, we are not we are not taught how to admire women or girls without sexualizing them mm. sometimes. And I think that's even like from a very young age. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the funny thing is, is since you brought up, you know, Millie Bobby Brown and Stranger Things, Finn Wolfhard, who also is in Stranger Things, he has experienced a very similar sexualization. He has a band, and uh, they actually played here uh, at uh, at Lala uh, last year. Okay. And um, there were... I heard this from a coworker of mine who was there, saw his band play, 
she was a little uncomfortable by the degree uh, to which some of the, you know, women in the audience and men in the audience were, you know, basically doing the same thing to him, like sexualizing this young kid, you know, yeah. on stage. And, um, and, and I, and I think that it can, you know, certainly it's more prevalent with women. And we talked a lot about it, even with, um, the Brooke Shields episode that we just covered. Um, you know, it's not, it, it, it's not anything new. Um, and I, I think that the way that it's handled within the context of this story, it, it does do something for the character of Abigail Fuller. Um, it's hard to criticize too, knowing that a woman wrote the script. Um, and I think if anything, it might be Deborah Pratt's way of making a bit of a commentary on that very fact, like showing this, this young girl turn into this young woman, turn into this woman and, and the way that she is indeed from the get go when she's 10 years old to when she's 23 years old to when she's, you know, 33 years old, uh, or whatever the timeline is, I might be getting that a little off, but is, is, is sexualized by all of these male characters. Mm-hmm. Um, even to the point of showing that, and I know it's a little twisted, showing that the man who leaps into her father and is the father figure for her for the course of these 48 hours, by the end of the episode, is in bed having sex with her. Mm-hmm. Not as her father, he's leaped out and he's now Will, but also seeing Will's attraction to the young Abigail in this episode. Yeah. It's, again, I think it's something that we'll talk more about as we go on, but it's worth mentioning here right off the bat that, yes, this is something that happens, that we see it in real life, that, that, that it's not just a piece of the story. However, in the context of the story, it is a fascinating and strong piece of the narrative and of this character mm-hmm. and the way others perceive her. Exactly. Yeah. For, for what that, for what that is worth. Right. <laughs> yeah. The picnic. Uh, we should talk about this picnic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the picnic, I just, uh, Sam tries to dig in and just like the highs and lows where Abigail goes in this scene. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like this may touch on where some people like have, have criticism of how Kimberly Cullen played the character. But again, I think it's just, it's just Abigail. And I, just, I agree. It just, she just kind of creeps you out. <laughs> And it, and it feels to me too that it's like this is you, you know whatever this means this is this is the scene she won that award for do you know what mm-hmm. I mean yeah like this is the scene that got her the award uh, it's really interesting too because we get a narrative device that we don't often get in Quantum Leap uh, although we did get it most recently I think in Leap for Lisa we get a flashback and the flashback yeah. is in black and white <laughs> um, of Abigail beating up Violet. And discovering that so much of apparently what has happened was over this locket, which Abigail and her mother were, you know, saving money for so that she could go buy this locket. And that Violet, who had more money, um, you know, bought the locket out from underneath her, basically. And uh, it's... um, I think I kind of lost the thread there. but, but But it is an interesting piece of the story that obviously comes back soon enough. Um, to haunt her the um, 
the the the, the near break between Sam and Abigail as he's pushing her and she and she gets upset at him. There's this really wonderful moment where he, you know, he kind of grabs her and he's like, "Look, I can't help you if you don't tell me these things." Um, the interesting part about this scene is, I feel like if if he were doing the same thing to a woman, an adult. It, we would have a different conversation about the way that he like grabs her, but because it's a child, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because of the nature of the relationship, it's a little different. Of course, the other big thing in this scene that occurs, and it's a really nice scene, by the way. I think you know Scott and and and, and Kimberly do a great job. the The other thing, of course, is notable about the scene is that Lita has been watching them and listening them listening in the whole time. Oh yeah. Um. So. Abigail's not the only creep in this uh, in this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this just yeah, creepy, creepy things all around. And is it shortly after this point where Sam discovers that Laura is not dead, and he goes yep. to to visit her in the asylum, which yeah. <laughs> is a very outdated term now, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Well, because we do get some some uh, interesting dialogue, and it's it's probably honestly in the midst of all the other stuff that's happening in the scene, the nicest piece of the scene is that Abigail recalls the night that her mother went away uh, or, or died, but of course we realize that it was the night that she went away. There are some questions left in the course of this episode of why Laura went away. Um, you know, did Clayton have her committed? Did she voluntarily commit herself? Did You know, what was the trigger that actually... You know, I think based on what Al says, it seems like Clayton had her committed. Yeah. Um, because pretty much as soon as she went in, she went comatose. Yeah. 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 Um, which, obviously, you know, we talked a little bit about mental health at the get-go. Uh, the way that mental health is treated um, by these characters. And, again, I think there's a sensitivity to which Deborah Pratt, the writer, treats it, but some of these characters obviously are clueless. You know, um, the the way that Laura's mother uh, is talked about, you know, killing her babies and herself. Um, you know, she'd rather kill her babies than see them starve because she lost her husband, she lost her money, she lost her mind. Um, you know, Laura, you know, potentially that, that, that mental instability, like, carries over. Um, that Sam defends it and says, you know, emotional, you know, trauma like that is not hereditary. Um, but of course, we're left with the question of is, you know, is is, is Abigail a little unhinged? Um, I mean, she, the anger that she displays when she beats up Violet. Um, I don't know. It's really it's it, 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 it's saying some interesting things um, without coming to a conclusion, which is wonderful because it's this great setup where there's a lot of... It's that iceberg theory. There's so much going on underneath. Sure. We're just getting the tip of the iceberg here. And we're and the, and the cool thing is, is that this isn't even the only tip. We're going to get two more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, yeah. With the next two parts. So just a lot of great texture. Um, but yeah, like I said, Sam finds out that Laura's still alive, been committed, and he goes to visit her in the asylum, takes Al with him. Yeah. And so while all this is going on, we know that in the original history, Abigail and her dad die in a house fire the night before, which is why Sam has sent Abigail off to Marie's. He thinks she's safe, and at the end of the scene in the asylum, Al drops. No, for whatever reason, Abigail has gone back to their house, and Sam peels out to go back, and as we exit this scene, Laura looks out the window. 
she has tears rolling down her eyes, and she also like reaches up to indicate like she could sense Al. Yeah. In 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 some way. So it's yeah yeah, yeah. delightfully creepy scene. And, For sure. And we have Sam driving back, and this is this is an extra moment that was not needed. It is not dramatic. It is not dramatically important to the episode. It changes nothing. Yeah. He hits yeah. Marie with this car. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, There's no I'm, there is no reason for him to no. hit her. He it could have been a close call. He could have slammed on the brakes. It maybe adds a little bit of dramatic tension over like slowing Sam down. Right, right, cuz he but has it, to stop. But it's uh, I, I I we do see Marie in parts two and three, but it never comes back as important as to why she had to be hit by the car. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I was like, seriously, when I saw, it, I was like, damn, they hit Marie with the car. Like <laughs> that, oh my God. that, yeah. Uh, we do, you know, she does give us a little bit of an info dump uh, about, you know, she was making dinner and, you know, she thought she was there. Then all of a sudden she realized she wasn't there. Um, uh, you know, we, when we, when we see, of course, the stuff that's going on in the house, it's pretty intense. Like Lita is, you know, is, is, is yelling and smacking and, and berating uh, Abigail. Abigail eventually smashes a flower vase on Lita's head. And, yeah. Uh, we get some blood. Um, there's actually a really cool moment. Um, and it's just one of those things that like it, you know, you, you ask the question, it's like, well, were, was this all shot at the same time? And maybe that's why, or was it just, you know, some good continuity from somebody on the set there's this really cool atmospheric bit where Abigail is hiding from Lita and she has a little bit of blood smeared on her. And I just really loved that because it's, it was, I don't know. There was something about the fact that like she busted this vase over Lita's head and opened her, you know, her skull up and, 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 you know, and that blood is, is literally on her now. Um, which I just thought was a really cool, again, a really cool shot. Um, by the way, speaking speaking of this house, we're yeah. in the house. We're in the quantum leap house. Yeah, we're in this. We're in the same house. They always use the same staircase, the same living room. Yeah, we're also <laughs> in. Uh, we're also in quantum leap town because Potterville Main Street is the same Main Street as uh, Leap Back. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah, which I think is the same as Color of Truth. Which is yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it, it's a great scene. Lita gets progressively more and more unhinged as it goes on. There's mm. almost something early on. She's menacing from the get go, and there's definitely something about this that you think that this is not going to end well. That said, from the beginning, there's a moment where you kind of think that maybe Lita is just literally going to take this locket and go. Like this is a grieving mother and wife who just wants what she thinks is hers and, and, and wants to punish and scare and frighten this little child. And then she's going to take it and she's going to leave. And that's that she'll have some sort of, you know, peace of mind. But as things go on and as the confrontation between the two of them continues, it just ratchets up more and more and more until it gets to the point where you're convinced it's like the only way Lita leaves this room happy, this house happy is if Abigail's dead. Yeah. Um, which is, is fascinating. (laughs) Um, I think at this point is when I when I when I type the the, the words Faulkner meets King meets movie of the week. <laughs> we're all kind of yes, we're all kind yeah. of right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, Sam shows up in time. Yeah. Um, 
the fire's been set. Which I think it's interesting, you know, they don't actually show Lita dropping or throwing down the lantern. But they don't. We hear her say, I'll kill you, I kill you all. And it, it's like the way it's shot, it was like, it was very intentionally, they made the, the, the choice to not actually show Lita starting the fire. Yeah. Which I've always wondered, like, are they trying to apply maybe still, like, maybe Abigail did it? I don't know. Well, another implication could be because we see her in a second, we see Laura in the flames. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, so is it is like, is, is Laura able to do some sort of like, you know, astral projection where she like, you know, it, it, the ghost of Laura shows up miles away from the body of Laura to wreak havoc or something like that? Like there, there's, there, there are elements um, again, of that sort of spectral quality of the house and these characters that, 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 that sort of this weird, you know, gothic ghost story. Um, the tension is ratcheted up also to a great degree. We, you know, we see the neighbors, you know, oh my God, the house is on fire. People are rushing into the front yard and there's Will Kinman again. Yeah. He, and he's just the pulls. way he's rushing for Abigail and the way he like says her name. Yeah. Yeah. They are setting it up. Yeah. And it's and it's hard not to be just a little skeeved out by the fact that you've got this 16, 17 year old kid who is into this 10 year old girl. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Now, the alternate perspective is, is that maybe maybe at this point it's just no, no, I'm, I was going to try to be like, maybe he sees her as like a you know, he's a big brother or something. No. There is something there, and it and it and it and, it, and again, it, it it plays really well into that that William Faulkner esque, you know, just kind of odd, the you know that 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 sex doesn't have any boundaries. That yeah. that that you know, for for a lot of his stories, you know, so many of his characters, it's you know, someone has been has been raped or someone has been molested or someone is having sex with someone who is not of their own race, which of course in his, you know, world and, and, and what he was, the perspective he was writing from was such a big taboo. Uh, you know, there, there are lesbian relationships in his stories. There are homosexual relationships in his stories. Like it's, 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 it's just a, 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 I don't want to use the word trope because I feel like that, that sounds like such a pejorative and I don't mean it in that fashion, but it is, it is indeed a thematic element of Southern Gothic stories. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something that's been well incorporated into this. Long story short, ha ha ha. Um, Abigail gets out. Will grabs her as Sam, you know, hands her off. Uh, Al is pleading with Sam to get out, get out, get out, get out. Sam is turned around. Um, he sees Laura. Uh, you know, there's this moment of hesitation. The beam starts to fall. Sam starts to cover up. But as the beam is hitting him, he, yeah. he leaps out. Yeah. Let's not talk about the leap out just yet. Let's just talk about the episode up until this point. Sure. So what are your thoughts about the fire scene in, in general? And, and did I miss anything? And, and, and you know. And no, I think you caught all the important things there. I, I do think, you know, at, at the moment we'll leap out. Like, this is the first time, like, we've ever seen, like, the person that Sam leaped to is dead. Yeah. Like, there, there is no way that they are surviving that it is worth noting in the original draft script that Sam was actually caught under the beam, yeah. Instead of having a collapse on it, I'm sure that was like a a budgetary. How do you shoot it? How do you not have Sam horribly 
injured right, at that right. point. Um, so I've always found that interesting. Uh, we were watching last night. Betsy was like, oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of a big thing to, like, you know, um, short of um, last dance before an execution. Right. You know, we're a very different circumstance. Like, you know, as soon as a person leaps back in, they're dead. Right. Um, I do find something a little heartbreaking as Abigail is crawling out the window and she's calling after her dad and Will saying, don't worry, you're going to like, he's coming right out. He's safe. You'll see him just a minute. Just like just just knowing that that's not how it's going to turn out for the dad is heartbreaking. Um, Well, and, and sorry to interject real quick. The thing that that also ties back into that we neglected to mention earlier in the story Abigail is very afraid that she's going to lose her father. Yeah. Uh, when they have that first conversation in, in Sam's bedroom. And Sam has this wonderful line where he says, I'll be here as long as you need me. And I think that it, it that, that line is twofold. You know, basically her dad is there as long as she needs him in one respect. And Sam, over the course of these three leaps, is there as long as she needs him. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's a, it's a really wonderful line. And I think plays into exactly what you're saying. Too with with her, you know, getting rescued, and then moments later, her mm-hmm. father dies. Yeah. Other than that, I think you pretty much you summed up the final moments of the episode pretty well. <laughs> uh, we know that Lita gets out the back way because what part of what causes Sam to hesitate is that Lita is yes. still in there, and yes. he's trying to save her. Boy Scout that Sam is, and Al reassures him, like, "Don't worry about her. She gets out the back way." I knew I Wait. forgot something. <laughs> yeah. How does Al know that? But anyway. Uh, the records were lost in a flood. Records were oh. lost. Yes, yes. Um, and then I uh, I, I kind of got the impression that a lot of the fire effect was animated. Oh, really? Okay. Probably. Yeah. Possibly. Or I wonder if I wonder if part of the reason why it feels that way is because so much of the time we see the fire, we see the hologram of Al and the ghost of Laura in the flames. And I wonder yeah. if that makes it seem like it is, or maybe all was, I don't know. I That's mean, just the fact like, like we're a TV show on a budget, the entire, right. The, you know, like everything is on fire. How do you do that safely on a TV budget? Sure. It seemed like a little, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I think that, that, that covers it. Yeah. Uh, so now we get the leap out and, yeah. So, two things. Much like Deliver Us from Evil, we know as an audience, in particular not just an American audience with Deliver Us from Evil, it was pretty much just the, the U.S. audience that knew, but, but we all know as an audience that this is the first part of a three-part episode. I mean, the name of the episode is Trilogy. That said... <clears throat> The leap out happens, and Sam is in bed in the middle of, of, of having sex with this woman. And we get Marie coming in. So now all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is weird. And then the next thing we know, Marie is saying, you know, couldn't even wait. Tomorrow's the wedding day, you know, like yeah. a bunch of rabbits in here. She storms out, slams the door. She's, you know, yelling at Will Kimmon to get out, get out, get out. Sam's like, Will? And then all of a sudden, you know, she says, Abigail. Get him out of Fuller, yeah, yeah. 
And Sam looks down and stutters. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> um, for what it's worth, we were watching it last night. Betsy did not figure out who the woman was until the name was said. Until Abba Girl Fuller. That's and, okay, good. That's yeah, just what I was wondering. Yeah. And she was like, uh, uh, uh. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's gross. Yeah. Uh, and you kind of wonder, like, they could have gone another way if they were telling a different story of just have Sam be like, oh, oh no, 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 hands off. Right, get away, right, get away right, from right, This right. is weird, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, but he doesn't leap out of bed, no pun intended. You know, yeah. he doesn't, yeah, he, uh, I mean, he's definitely shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the interesting thing is, too, is that we'll talk about it more next episode, but it, the actor playing Abigail is Melora Hardin, who, of course, we know so well from The Office, amongst other things. Uh, but we don't really get to see her face very well uh, because it's all, you know, darkly lit since they're in bed. Um, but, yeah, I mean, let's face it. Just moments ago, Sam was this person's father. And now he has leapt into their lover slash fiance. Yeah. In the middle of the act. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, it's a little weird. Yeah. It's I mean, it's, you know, this is the thing of, it's hard to judge Sam sometimes because these are weird situations that are created by time travel and you don't know how you would actually react. Absolutely. In those moments. (laughs) And I, and I, the thing that I think that is interesting and will continue to be interesting and we'll talk more about next time is that. It puts Sam in a situation unlike any other that he's ever been in, which for a show like Quantum Leap that's been on for five years is worth noting, like, Mm. good for you. It plays directly into the thematic elements of the Southern Gothic framework that Deborah Pratt is clearly working in. Mm. And it shines a light on characters that again, have this... They're drawn to, in a very strong way, to this person, Abigail Fuller. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the other things that's worth noting is that in spite of Sam accomplishing what he was supposed to accomplish in the terms of saving Abigail in The Leap, that the murders are still unsolved. And that is just a wonderful stroke that, of course, will carry us through the mm-hmm. next two parts. Absolutely. Final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um, I've always enjoyed the trilogy episode, so I... And this is something that I've probably watched, like, recent, like we watched recently in the last five years. No new surprises, no new big thoughts about the episode. I still think it's uh, kind of the weakest out of the three, as I sure. remember, just because, like I said, it's, it's just building the world for two and three. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested. I, I'm looking forward to diving into the other two. How about you? I would agree with that. I will say that for this episode, that kind of the, you know, it, one of the one of the many master strokes that that Pratt 
does over the course of the episode is that in doing all of the world building and, and all of the setup for these payoffs in these next two episodes, she does, she somehow amazingly does not sacrifice the dramatic tension of this particular episode's stakes in order to do that. And I think that is kind of brilliant. Like, we have enough dramatic tension to pull us along through the course of this episode Mm -hmm. to see Sam save the day at the end, like we would with a normal leap, while also getting all of this incredible texture and world building like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is... That's something that, quite frankly, even some of your standard boilerplate good episodes of Quantum Leap, not great, but good episodes of Quantum Leap can't always do. They either can't do the world building, but they get the mission, the tension of the mission right. Yeah. Um, Or they do some pretty good world building, but the tension of the mission falls flat because they spend this time waiting in this other pool instead of, you know, heading for the finish line. And I think that, I think that Pratt does not do either of those things. I think she's able to build the world while also having this wonderful bit of tension that gets us to the end. Again, reinforcing my argument, I think the series ultimately would have been better if Deborah Pratt just had more control. If I'm an NBC executive right now, working my plan for Peacock, wanting to get it out there as soon as possible because people are spending more money on streaming services right now than ever before, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's my first call. To, to helm the Quantum Leap reboot. I would agree with that, or at least being a, cons- a consultant on the show. Yes, yes. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I not, not to bring it back around to where we were talking about the start of the, uh, the episode with everything going on right now, I am wondering what this is going to do to, like, any future TV shows or whatever, the current situation. Yeah. Because right now, like, no TV shows are filming right now. I know. Everything's on a break. It's, it's the- going to be interesting to see... What ideas get shelved? What what goes away as a result of of uh, the sad truth of the matter is is when it comes to television, uh, something that basically already happened, but it's going to be furthered. Is that I mean, reality TV and game show TV is going to be the fucking soup of the day, man. That's all we're going to get probably once TV really starts back up. It's going to be a while before we see narrative television again. It's going to be, what can I make the cheapest and what can I make the fastest? And unfortunately, yeah. hour-long television dramas, especially in the science fiction realm, ain't it. So it's going to be slim fucking pickings. The I only saving grace is, is that we've got some studios that are holding things back. Um, you know, they're also releasing a lot of stuff early, but but they're holding some things back. So my hope is, is that we'll get some of that held back. But I have a feeling that... It's going to be nothing but survivors and American idols, as yeah. far as the eye can see. I can't remember if it's the the person who brought the U.S. version of The Office, that person who brought it to life, or if it's the the producer of Parks and Rec. One of those, or if it's not the same, I don't think it's the same person. Like one of those, somebody is work already working on a Office esque sitcom, but it's going to be set in the remote world. Nice. Like they're already like work, and I'm, I'm hoping maybe we'll get a little creative. As far as that goes. I uh, hope so. Yeah. But not to get super morbid, but COVID-19, you fucking leave Scott and Dean alone. Oh, no shit. <laughs> you took John Prine, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're, um, they're, they're both in the key demographic groups. Like Scott, like he's like 65, 66 now. He's yeah. getting up there, you know, and he was shooting in Louisiana, which is that's you know, right, a hot spot, yeah. Yeah, so let's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on a, you know, on a larger note, I hope it leaves everyone that that's listening right now alone. I hope that your loved ones are, are well. And, you know, we, we just, uh, want to just drive home the fact that, um, you know, take care of yourselves, uh, be smart, stay home, wash your hands, all that jazz. Like we're all in this together. It's not easy. Not everyone is experiencing it the same way. Some of us are much, much more fortunate than others are. And, uh, I think it's healthy to just put ourselves in check and remember the fact that if we're able to listen to a podcast, create a podcast, binge watch some TV, be safe in our homes, that uh, we are very, 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 very fortunate Yeah. Uh, because there are a lot of people that, that can't do that. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's important to remember that, but it's also important to remember that we're all in it together, eh? no matter what your situation is. You know that, that that we need to help one another and be there for one another, and that and that kindness kindness should rule the day. Yeah, I will leave it. I my policy is is like when you say we're all in this together. If you're an individual telling me that, I believe that. If you're a company, <laughs> if you're a company telling me that, I'm like, what are you selling me, fucker? <laughs> yeah. Companies and politicians aside, we're all in this together. <laughs> yes. Um, and along those lines, we say, uh, early on we posted on our Facebook page, we thought that we'd be spitting out a bunch of episodes as a result yeah. of this. And that is not the case, is the reality of uh, both of us uh, during the work week. We are the primary child care providers because um, you have a job that's a little bit more flexible. I, a massage therapist, I am, I am basically unemployed now at this point. Uh, so you and me, we're responsible for taking care of the little ones during the week while, yeah. uh, while our wives are hard at work. And I know Jessica, she is, she works in the banking industry. So yeah. as you can imagine, uh, Betsy, she works, she works for a mortgage broker. Um, so that is, yeah. they're trying to stay ahead of all of that, of everything going on right now. So it's, uh, yeah, interesting times. We're getting the episodes out when we can. Uh, but one of the reasons why we've been slowed down too is that I am in software coding school. I had my first big project. Uh, the first big project I created is a online quantum leap quiz. Uh, I am not ready to put it out in the world just yet, but, <laughs> but once I am ready, uh, I'll make that website live and, and, and put that out there for, for people to try their hand at. For sure. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you said that because it, yeah, we would love to be producing more content and being more active. You know, I had all these goals to try to get on Reddit and Facebook more and interact more. And, and, and I owe people messages all over the place. Best Corey, yeah. one of our listeners, best yes, yeah. sent us an awesome message and best. I did not forget or neglect that. I, I am, I am, I am all in, especially when it comes to doctor who. So uh, we'll certainly uh, follow up with you. Um, but, but all of our listeners and everyone who's been participating on Facebook, we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if you get a chance to go over and check out the quantum leap subreddit over on Reddit, uh, they're still doing that sort of, uh, March madness, um, you know, best episode tournament. Um, a couple of really good episodes have gone down to mediocre episodes, which really pisses me off, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where, where's portrait for Troy on the list? Uh, I think it got knocked out actually. So, so okay. we're okay on that one. Uh, Machiko got knocked out, but it got way more upvotes than it should have. Um, so, <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, right now I think, uh, temptation eyes is losing to an episode that it has no business losing to. So, uh, go over there and help temptation eyes out. 
Um, yeah. Uh, seriously, everyone, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We will be back at some point in the very near future, hopefully within the next week, um, with Trilogy Part 2, and, and diving further into the world of Potterville, Louisiana, and Abigail Fuller, and all of her acquaintances, lovers, yeah. adversaries... Yes, I was going to read this up. I'm going to leave this as a teaser for next one. In the next episode, I will argue why trilogy is a true trilogy, and the Back to the Future movies are not a real trilogy. Dun dun dun! Oh, I can't wait! I can't wait! I've been wanting to rewatch Back to the Future. Actually, it's been a while. It's time. It is time. It's time. Hey! Hey! Out of time! Out of time! Um, Uh, (laughs) We're out of time. Let's leap out of here. Have a great week, everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Can't see.